Hello, podcast listeners. This is Rob Long, one of the co-founders of Ricochet, along with Peter Robinson, and I'm here to invite you to a very special event. On January 26th in Los Angeles, we will be recording our Ricochet flagship podcast 200th episode live, and we want you to be in the audience. Now, if you're a member, you can go to the member feed and buy your tickets between now and I think Monday morning. And if you're not a member, you can buy your tickets after Monday. But this is a perfect time for you to join Ricochet. If you're listening to this podcast and you're not a member, this is the kind of thing we do all the time. So please join Ricochet. Come see us in Los Angeles, January 26th. It's $25 for the live show, $75 for the VIP reception. Who's going to be there? Well, the Ricochet regulars, me and Peter Robinson and James Lilix, but also Jonah Goldberg, Pat Sajak, Dennis Prager, Andrew Clavin, Troy Senek, DC McAllister, and more to be announced later. We'd love to meet you. We'd love to shake your hand. We'd love to thank you for being a member. We'd love to have you join Ricochet.com. See you Sunday, January 26th. The Glop Podcast is brought to you by Encounter Books. This week's featured title is Glenn Reynolds' The New School, How the Information Age Will Save American Education from Itself. Glenn Reynolds is, of course, Instapundit. For 15% off any title, use the coupon code RICOCHET, R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T, at checkout. We'll be talking about this a little later in the show. This is the Glop Culture Podcast. With me, John Podhoritz, and in Venice, California, Rob Long. Hi, Rob. Hey, John. How are you? Good. And in Washington, D.C., Jonah Goldberg. Hi, Jonah. Hey, how's it going? Uh, good. Um, and Wait, that we, was a very tentative. That was a tentative good. That was like, I'm good, good but I'm it's good. not great. I don't it's, know. <laughs> it's, it's okay because I just read – that last night we're taping this on uh, on Tuesday the fourteenth. That last night on MSNBC, MSNBC devoted two hundred and eleven minutes to Chris Christie's Bridgegate, <laughs> Bridge Gazi, two hundred and eleven minutes, which uh, you know, in one sense, is a positive because it meant that they didn't spend two hundred and eleven minutes talking about why Reese Witherspoon was the person to introduce the clip of 12 Years a Slave on the, uh, on the Golden Globes uh, and why uh, mentioning that Hillary Clinton had an enemies list was uh, an act of sexism and, uh, right. and, uh, and all of that. But nonetheless, 211 minutes, uh, we're now five days, or five days into this scandal um, – is it uh, being overdone? Is it uh, is it already uh, jumping the shark, or are Christie's troubles just beginning? Jonah, what do you think? Um, I, I, I think uh, you can make the case of all of the above. I think it's absolutely ludicrous at this point. Um, on the assumption that Chris Christie wasn't lying in his press conference, this is an absolutely bizarre. I mean, familiar but bizarre spectacle of elite journalism feeding frenzy. Um, the idea that I – mean, look, what I think what they did is terrible and it should be – you know, as I say in my latest column, I think that this should be a really big deal at the New Jersey level of state journalism. But the <laughs> idea that meet the press this week yeah. and all these guys should de- dedicate virtually the bulk, you know, at least half of their shows and, the, and, and where all the intensity is from – is ludicrous. Lane closures on the George Washington Bridge, no matter how broad 
for a few hours, right? Yeah, it just it's 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 bizarre. Well, and no, let me thought ex- thought experiment. The lane closures are on the Fort McHenry Tunnel in Baltimore, oh. or the lane closures are on the I don't know, name another bridge somewhere. Any bridge, any yeah. bridge, the Chesapeake <laughs> Bay Bridge, right? Uh, the you know, the Bay bridge, I, San Francisco, Bay, the Bay. Bay. nothing. Yeah. Nothing, no story. The idea that intelligent people are sitting around – I mean these are intelligent people. They're sitting around and saying, will this have an effect on the 2016 presidential race? I'll give them $100,000 for every Iowan or New Hampshire citizen or South Carolinian they can find who gives a – Careful, careful. Whatever about this. It's ridiculous. It's, okay. but it's also hilarious. Uh, because no, ordinarily, you say, wait, ordinarily, you say about a day like this, you go, oh, it's a slow news day. Well, you know, it's a slow news day. No, it's not. There's nothing slow about the news. The news is very fast these days. There's plenty else to Yeah, talk you know, about. you know, we've just heard, we've just heard, for example, that uh, the administration uh, announced with great fanfare that the uh, six month uh, period of a deal with Iran in which maybe they would do a good thing with their nuclear program in exchange <laughs> for billions of dollars is That's about the, to actual, go into effect. That's the dialogue, by the way. It's that, about that we, to go we, into we effect. We promise to do a good thing. A good thing. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It's about to go into effect. Only there's this, according to the Iranians, this big secret side deal that we're not being told about. So wouldn't you think that a secret side deal between the United States and Iran uh, that is not being reported might, say, wet the appetites no, of the Washington Christie press corps? He joked about putting out the cones. He joked about putting out cones. Don't you he put understand? Out he put he out meant, cones. He That's meant right. ice cream cones. Have you seen the man? But the, now, um, I, would like, I would like to stipulate that I think – that you guys are soft peddling the Bridgegate scandal. It is a perfect political scandal. Here is the takeaway from it that people in Iowa and elsewhere could go for, which is government deliberately made traffic. Okay. <laughs> That's actually a pretty good scandal. It's not no, you know, despite the fact that their efforts to claim that people died from it, nobody died from it, but it made traffic on the first week of school. Everybody was late. It took three hours for people to get to work, all of that. That's actually, as an abuse of power, it's both petty and extraordinary in the sense that it is something that every single person can have a feeling of connection with. Having said that – and yeah. Barack Obama made flight delays worse deliberately during the sequester and the shutdown by picking air traffic controllers to remove at the most vulnerable points, not in the best management. I mean, the, the parallels with what Obama has tried to do um, in terms of maximizing pain of innocent people are blatant. But I mean, I, I agree with you. It's a huge scandal on the Jer- Jersey level, but this is not a national story. The national story is Chris Christie and the attempt by the mainstream media to atone for its love affair with him in advance of the 2016 election. Now, they may be doing – When will they reverse. atone for their love affair with Obama though? That's what I want to know. How that, That's going to be terrible. When I mean, they're before guy. the pearly gates, my friend. <laughs> They'll atone in hell. But now can I just say that uh, we, we, are, we are crowdsourcing this. Uh, in many ways, we, we asked uh, Ricochet members to, to come up with some topics that we could talk about uh, This is today. the one topic they said they didn't and want the, to talk about. <laughs> one topic they said they didn't want to talk about. But I think what's interesting about the fact that they said they didn't want to talk about it, sometimes people don't want to talk about something because it's just, it's just too much. It, it, uh, can we not talk about this painful subject? 
Can we not talk about this thing that bothers me so much? And sometimes they don't want to talk about it because they realize it's insignificant. It doesn't matter. And I think it's the latter in this case. However, since we brought up crowdsourcing, I don't know who brought it up. I guess I brought it up. You brought it up. I would like to remind everyone listening to the Law Podcast, John Podoritz, uh, with John Podoritz and Jonah Goldberg and me, that uh, at the end of this month, we are going to be recording a live version a live version of our Ricochet flagship podcast in Los Angeles. It's to, it's to celebrate our 200th episode. Uh, and we will, of course, be doing the same thing when we celebrate the 200th episode of this podcast. And we'll be doing it in front of a live audience with a few of our favorite guests. Pat Sajak, Jonah Goldberg will be there, Dennis Prager, Andrew Clavin, me, Peter Robinson, James Lilix will be hosting with us. The live show will be at the Town & Gown Ballroom at USC. Uh, tickets are available. Uh, just go to... Um, uh, ricochet.com, the presenter and producer of this podcast. The best thing for you to do to get a ticket is to join, become a member. Members pay less, members get in first, uh, members get to go to the VIP reception. So uh, check it out, ricochet.com. We would love to meet you and greet you and um, see you there. That sounds like so much fun. Seriously. I'm, yeah. I'm Come on. You, you, well, you're, of course, you're, of course, invited. Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> I, I, I live across the country, but it sounds fantastic. We did a um, we did a live uh, uh, glop, of course, in New York, yeah, yeah. and uh, and that was amazingly fun. So at a bar uh, in Midtown, and that was really a lot of fun, and the uh, the audience was great. So uh, it is absolutely, fun, it? everybody like should. It's like old show. It's like it's the way TV used to be in the 50s. You know, where- Larry King used to do a radio show in Miami from Wolfie's Deli. And, uh, you know, he had all the guy, all the people on, Buddy Hackett. All the stars. Sinatra and Fugitive Financier, Robert Vesco. <laughs> That's right. That's what it was. Bernie hey. Kornfeld and all, and it was all always those, a, all from those Hilversum, guys. From Hilversum, Holland. Hello. <laughs> Somebody, it was always somebody calling wrong from Hilversum, Holland. Uh, you know, Larry, I have a question for Fugitive Financier. Yeah. <laughs> What's your no. question? Yeah. Is What's that true? What's question? What hey you know the you know the comedian that what is it it's Kevin Pollock right uh, yeah. he has this great party game I heard him talk about it on some Florida radio show once where you have to um it's pretend you have to do your best Larry King impersonation then you have to pretend to answer the phone saying whatever the name of a city is you're on the line and then you have to reveal an embarrassing fact about yourself. And so oh. Kevin Pollock does this thing and he goes and he is much better Larry King than I do, but half the joke is hearing people's bad Larry King impersonation. And you go, This is Larry King. Hello, Buffalo. You're on the line. I'm sitting in my own sauce. <laughs> and, and, and apparently what's his name? Matthew Perry back in his drinking days was so into this game that he would just I mean, run around true. parties doing it over and over again. Uh, you know, Kevin Pollack, uh, Kevin Pollack may be the greatest impressionist I've ever heard. Oh, he's, he's, he's really very strong. Yeah. You should go on YouTube and just like get his – listen to his his William Shatner, his Christopher Walken. He is yeah. unbelievable crazy. and he actually – he's crazy. He actually wrote kind of a funny book about what a jerk he is, which you can read on Amazon. Um, but he's, apparently – he, I heard him talk about – he says he, you have to tune yourself 
when you're tuning in an impression you do, you tune yourself by uh, whatever the catch word is for for walking. It's uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. Why? <laughs> Why do you? It's crazy. And, and he does that until he gets it back, and then he can go forward. I, I wrote a Larry King in Larry King voice for years when he was on when I was stuck with uh, for, for something to do with Longview, and I would just do Larry King. Uh, what, what the, oh, the, the, uh, true, true Larry King aficionados know that the fun wasn't the uh, the TV show. The fun was his weird, cr- like like neurologically interesting uh, UC, uh, USA Today USA column. Today column. King's yeah, no, things. King's, My, King's things. things. And it was just weird sentences, like tweets. Really, early tweets. It was. But they, the juxtaposition was great. I remember one was right after. Um, what, right after uh, the Princess of Wales died, and uh, I think the line was something like, uh, uh, "Did anyone see the the carriage with her coffin winding its way through the streets of London with the two boys following, and not shed a tear?" I don't think so. I don't think so. Is there a better sandwich than a ham sandwich? Not by <laughs> me, my friends. Not by me. <laughs> like, whoa, what? what? <laughs> And I just had this impression of Larry King. I've never had watching. a better time at the movies than at Con Air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> watching, he's been there watching the funeral, eating a ham sandwich. He goes, I got two items right here. Write it down. <laughs> well, you know, he's got um, a new, I don't know if you guys get it on your cable systems, but uh, he is now on Russia Today, the less than admirable uh, Russian that, yeah. propaganda yes. thing. Yeah. And yeah. they have these commercials for him where they show him asking these utterly banal questions like, what's the trade-off between security and privacy? And then it ends with him full to screen saying, Larry King, because he asks the, touch, the tough questions no one else will. <laughs> Tomorrow night, the whole Minsk, hour with hello. the cast of the Partridge family. It's a whole hour. <laughs> really? Minsk, hello. Yeah. <laughs> hasn't been a show since like, oh, ever since. Uh-oh. What's the question? Uh-oh, we're starting on the Larry King now. You know, it never ends. Okay, no more. Um, All right, okay. so, so this is not excellent crowdsourcing. crowdsourcing. No. As we are crowdsourcing, I will now read, a, I will now read one uh, crowdsourced topic, which is interesting. There was a Time magazine quiz attempting to prove how – or to suggest by the answers from 10 questions how much uh, and how little um, – uh, you were liberal or conservative. And so uh, uh, GLD3, uh, Ricochet member GLD3. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Asks. I love his work. Uh, cats versus dogs. Was that really a liberal versus conservative indicator? Because if you chose dogs, uh, that gave you – that made you more of a conservative. And if you chose cats, that made you more of a liberal. Now, Jonah – I believe Jonah will actually attempt now to make the case that this is a correct that this is a correct way to divide Americans on the liberal conservative spectrum, but I, I'm not sure. So Jonah, well, you know, it's interesting. I took this test the other night, and let's 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 divide up this question into its two parts. Um, I took the test the other night, and my problem with it is, you know, Jonathan Haidt's a serious guy, and I'm sure he's being honest about his data, but some of the questions are. Like just explicitly, are you a conservative kind of questions? Do you believe that children need authority in their lives? Um, do you believe that borders should exist between nations? You know, and so of course conservatives are going to no. say yes. Um, you know, and at proven point, Rob just said no. And uh, <laughs> the 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 
And so then it asks you dogs versus cats. Well, it already asked you these like absolute giveaway questions about whether you're conservative. And so I don't know. I mean, it just seems to me that the dog, you know, it's gratuitous. It could have been, what's your favorite flavor ice cream? The conservatives are still going to come out conservative on the test. That said, it is obviously true that cats are the handmaidens of Satan. True. And okay. that all good conservatives should prefer dogs. But now, and I say this as someone who has no dog at the moment and two cats. Well, well that's, that's, I think that's very noble of you. However, I would like to point out that according to this quiz, if you like ethnic food, you are a liberal. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. It was this question. It's like, oh, I love to try the new restaurant in my neighborhood that has two – that attempts to blend two ethnic cuisines. That's right. The fusion. Because, you know, yeah. conservatives, they're I going want Applebee's yeah. and they're going nowhere. And yeah. by the way, doesn't Applebee's have like Asian chicken dishes now? Well, let's let's simmer down, John. Applebee's <laughs> is not uh, it does not count as an ethnic restaurant. But I uh, <laughs> I, I sort of agree with Jonah. I am like not a, you've I, ever been to Applebee's. I've been to a I've been to Applebee's. You've been never to, been to Applebee's. I have, been, I have been to Applebee's. I have been to more Applebee's than you have, my friend. I don't think that is true. When was actually. the last time you drove across the country? I've been to Applebee's like no, no, I no, no, twice no. or three times a year. What was the last time I drove across the country? Yeah. 1981. Yeah, okay. case, case closed. Case closed. That was Shoney's then. That's where okay. we went. When was the last time you drove from Memphis to any other major city around Memphis? Uh, 1994. Okay. Yeah, I, I've been to more Applebee's. Just, let's, just, so let's just leave it Okay. But I will say this. Jonah, I believe Jonah is correct. I, and I, and I, Jonah, I, can I – it's a sidebar – are you – I mean I know this is sort of a uh, – uh, I mean I know it's, it was a very painful time. I know when I lost my dog, I was, I was awful. Are you looking? Are you shopping? Um, I, I didn't, hadn't planned on breaking news here, but we have been scouring the rescue pages and we are uh, in um, – we've been approved for adoption. I feel You're like we're going to get – You're an escrow. I feel like we're going to go fly to Beijing tomorrow to pick up our Chinese baby. But um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's an amazing uh, process that, that what these people put you through to adopt a mutt from rural uh, South Carolina. You know, it's just really kind of amazing. Beautiful. Um, Beautiful. This is but it looks amazing. like that's what we're going to do. It could fall through. Who knows? Fingers crossed. You know, me well, and my as- life partner, we would like to adopt this dog. So, <laughs> Well, as my, as my Jewish friends say, mazel tov. <laughs> That's uh, very good, Rob. Yeah. Well, listen. Uh, it's a, it's a, that, that, I think it's a mitzvah that you guys. Uh, well, as my as my Dianus. Irish as my Irish friends say, Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I well I do you know as Yogi Berra once famously said upon hearing that the mayor of Dublin, Bobby Briscoe, was a Jew only in what? America. <laughs> the mayor of Dublin. In the 1960s, Bobby Briscoe, Robert Briscoe, was Jewish. And upon being told that, Yogi Berra said only in America. Yes. I buy that. Okay. Uh, so, Jonah, while I agree with you about dogs and cats, I actually – and, and I, 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 I'm a dog lover myself. I'm a dog owner. Um, I actually think the interesting thing is that cats seem to be more conservative in their personality and dogs seem to be, frankly, a little bit more commie. Dogs are pack animals. They, they respect authority. The beta dog just does whatever the alpha dog does. They don't really – there's no real sense of uh, individuality or, or um, you know, entre- dogs are not entrepreneurial. Um, they're very lo- – I mean dogs have all the characteristics of, uh, frankly, of uh, really very, very good citizens of the socialist republic. 
So I think okay. what I think where but, Jonah would come down, if I can just uh, speak sure. for Jonah, because although I do want to write a rebuttal, but go ahead, John. He has a he has a frog in his throat, as I understand it, is that uh, Jonah would probably make the claim that what dogs are, dogs are Burkeans, and and cats are like Albert J. Nockians. They are extreme individualists, <laughs> hostile to society, whereas dogs respect tradition. <laughs> lines of authority yep. they are and they are uh they are not governed by ideology but rather by uh standards of behavior would that jonah would I, I think I, that, that is very close to my argument I mean, i've had this debate in the corner for many years as john knows i would say that rather than Naki, you know i think that kind of works in terms of their elitism and their inability to tell the difference between say belgium and america um i think that uh they're Randian. Cats go galt. They use people for their yeah. own benefits. They have their own agendas, which are supreme. And dogs are, uh, are creatures of the higher sentiments, of loyalty, of decency, of sacrifice. Of obedience. And, and, um, and so, you know, <laughs> have the... You guys, have you guys seen this screamingly funny YouTube video of the soldier who comes back after six months... <laughs> To his cat, yeah, so I have seen that. You know, as opposed to the, you know, the videos of when the 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 the, the dog sees yeah. the 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 man, the, you know, the person in the military after eight months and runs and cries and hugs and bought licks and barks and rolls over. <laughs> this, one, this guy opens the door and he says, "You know, Mister Skeffington, I'm home." And the cat just stares at him. well you know the cat you the cats never we never got a parade from the cats um i i I just taken this quiz by the way i just took it while while whilst you know maintaining my argument about cats and dogs and And? this is this is how inaccurate this quiz is this quiz says that i am 81 percent conservative and 19 percent liberal now wow i was more liberal than you on that and i think we as listeners to the Glop podcast can attest, and ricochet readers, I'm a, I'm a little bit more rhino than that. Rhino. But the liberal qualities that I have are that I have a messy desk. I like fusion cuisine. I use a modern browser. <laughs> yes, well, that was the other great one. That's the other Those one. are all true of me Chrome. as well. Yeah, if and I use, prefer – you use Chrome, you're a, <laughs> you're a liberal. I don't know where – because you know, yeah. there's, if there's one thing one knows about conservatives, they're <laughs> they're on they're using Internet Explorer if they're not still you know getting their email through Prodigy. That's one thing. Well, no, you know. they're, they're eating up. white they're eating white bread ham sandwiches with no few crossover cuisines of any kind exactly. while using out of date browsers. Right? We I mean, stand that. athwart the path of browser development, <laughs> shouting stop. Um, uh, and I prefer the Met to Times Square. You sissy. Well, what? What? Un, uh, You're not, a sissy. Not, not the old Times Square, but the new one, the Giuliani <laughs> one. You know, the one that's yeah, all the one Disneyfied. Ruined it. Yeah. Speaking of Disneyfied, by the way, I want to tell you guys that I saw Saving Mr. Banks, the new movie sure. about the I relationship with people. And I thought it was appalling. It was appalling. I've never seen it was it the entire movie was this apologia for taking somebody else's creative work, 
bodlerizing it and then her objecting to the bodlerization becomes is she's only upset that they're changing her beloved work because she has unresolved father issues so oh, the whole, she, they paid her <laughs> well they they hadn't paid her that's the whole oh, story right. of the the whole story of the movie is that they were they were in the process of making Mary Poppins they were almost about to make it and they he hadn't actually secured the rights yet so he attempted to seduce her by bringing her to Hollywood for a week to consult on the on the movie, and then she came and basically said, "I don't want it to be a cartoon. I don't want you to jazz it up." Mary Poppins is a very tough and interesting character. Don't bodlerize and you know turn my beloved creation into a into a silly cartoon. And whether or not the movie that was made from it is a classic, which I think it is, she had a point. She very much had a point. Mary Poppins is a very singular, peculiar character, and the books are themselves very singular and peculiar and very beloved to a lot of people. And Hollywood, in the most remarkable way, basically sides with the producer who basically wants to take the writer's work and crumple it up and throw it in the garbage can and attacks the writer who wants to defend the artistic integrity of the work. I thought it was a very interesting interesting spin, and it's amazing that any – writer or critic would even think that this was a sort of a minimally acceptable way to look at it. But that's, that's just me. It was fun. It had Tom Hanks in it and stuff. No, I didn't see it. I, I have it. <laughs> I did, however. <laughs> I, I have it. I did, however, Says see, the producer. I didn't, see, I didn't see the picture, but I read the coverage. It was, it was wonderful. I had Tom Hanks. He was playing a wonderful role. Uh, and then the, the, the English lady from The Thing, and she was funny, but she was also English, and, the, and therefore, well, she's smart. Smart. Um, I uh, I did, however, see um, which I realized now that maybe Jonah wanted to talk about that movie. Did you like it, Jonah? The uh, I I, I, I saw it with my uh, daughter, and as John can attest, when you see movies, this was like a test to see how much Lizzie can handle, like a, a, a truly PG thirteen kind of movie, and um, and so you're just sitting there the entire time seeing it through her eyes. Yeah. And um but I agree with John. I mean I think that I think part of the problem was that the what's her what's her name the chick who wrote Mary Poppins? Um, um PL English lady, Emma Thompson. PL. Her name is Emma PL. Thompson. PL. <laughs> yeah. Um she is apparently was such an awful person in real life uh that you know it kind of colors it. But no, I agree with John. I th- I thought it was a really interesting approach. Um and more I mean one of the things that struck out for me was it was it was it was one long extended product placement for Walt Disney. Um, personally, Walt I, Disney personally, it's all this. Disney is just such a wonderful company and everybody is happy there and everyone yeah. refers to each other by their first names. They have Disneyland and it's yeah. really just so wonderful well, and it's just glorious. And then they make 75 horrendously bad movies, one after the <laughs> other. The computer wore tennis shoes and the monkey's uncle and the and the, the love bug and the good. love cat and the, the cat bug and you and just don't like a, joy. You have a problem with joy. And outer space. <laughs> you don't and, like joy. And then Let me right in you. the middle of this, they made this one remarkable movie, Mary Poppins. You know, one one good live action movie out of eight trillion. Yeah. You know. Anyway, yeah. I just thought it was it was it was striking. Like the way you got the co- cooperation of the Disney company was to turn Walt Disney into a character entirely without blemish. By the way. 
He's a well, saint. Yes, that's he that, is that is a, a saint. That is a, that is a Walt Disney uh, uh, trait, and, and it doesn't even know. mention his most saintly uh, aspect, which was, of course, that he broke the unions and was an anti-communist. Neither of those is mentioned, though. For those, I for the- getting sainthood. I was hoping that the credit roll would be over his decapitated, frozen head. I thought that would have been a really nice touch. <laughs> Wait, wasn't that Ted Williams? Well, there's a there's a legend that that Disney's frozen head is somewhere in the 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 sort of Andromeda strained bowels of the Disney complex. Really, because you know they did that they did that to Ted Williams's head. Yeah, you know, they because one day we're creating like Ted yes. Williams' head. one frozen head. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And you know, then then when they reanimated it, it had hypnotic powers and could control people um, and all of that. To you know, it controlled a rod to take steroids so that Ted Williams' uh, record would not be breached. Payback for the curse of the Bambino. All right. So, you, Rob, you were saying something about you saw something. I was going to say what I was going to say to uh, to John was that last time we were on, we we talked about um, Inside Lewin Davis. Yes. Which I saw and. Not. Uh, and it's excellent. It's really great. It's great. It's a great picture. Um, See, it's I thought so too. And now all these it, people are telling me they couldn't stand it. So I'm, well, I'm no, mad. I think I think that's possible. I mean, it's possible to not be able to stand it, but um, it's it's hard to yeah. It's possible to not be able to stand it, but it's it's slow. It's slow, but it's a, a character study, and the music's great, and it's. Um, it's just really – I just love it. I just think it's great. And there's, some, and there's one or two moments in it that are probably the best moments on film this year um, and, and so spare in their dialogue but so brilliantly funny and uh, I just uh, – and, and funny in a you know, deep way that I just thought. What he plays for F. Murray Abraham – Oh, and I won't give it away. He plays this you – know, he's trying to get – he needs a club date and he plays a song for F. Murray – he plays his heart out. For F- and F. Marie Aikman just kind of stares at him. It's an audition, and they're in the middle of an empty uh, nightclub, uh, and it's shot beautifully. And he finishes it. He finishes it, and he kind of looks up, and he and he ends the song like just selling it so hard to to F. Marie Abraham who's staring at him. And then the line that F. Marie Abraham says, which I won't give away, is the best piece of dialogue in 2013. Yep, and the whole way that it's shot, that yeah, scene great. is shot, is a. Uh, works to make the line even more devastating uh, because it's yeah. filmed in a way that you would recognize from movies about how right. somebody is auditioning their heart out for you know the person who can make or break their career. Anyway, it's a, it is a it is a pretty remarkable movie. Now I have to say because we're crowdsourcing, we need to get back to yeah, the we crowd had a exactly. and their source. So uh, our our good friend. Uh, uh, Ricochet reader uh, W.I. Khan, which I guess means Wisconsin conservative, um, asks, quote, There's been, there have been several posts lately from the female Ricochetti about how to appeal to political women, single, unmarried, younger. Uh, thoughts? Care to risk a night sleeping on the virtual couch and let Uh-oh. us know what you think? Uh-oh. That's another uh, bit from... Uh, from Inside Lewin Davis, a song called Please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh-oh. Anyway, so uh, how uh, we three uh, old white males are going to do some mansplaining about how to appeal <laughs> to political women. You guys know about mansplaining, right? Oh, sure. Anytime men speak 
any say anything about an issue relating to women, we are now accused of mansplaining. So uh, I believe that I will – maybe I will kick begin, off – Why don't you begin by mansplaining something? I will kick off the mansplaining by saying uh, the way for uh, conservatives to appeal to uh, – Single, unmarried, younger women is the way that conservatives should appeal to single, married, younger, unmarried, younger men and older men and middle-aged men and middle-aged women and married women and elderly women, which is to propose an agenda uh, that will allow uh, this country to get out of its – out of the uh, financial and spiritual and foreign policy doldrums and get back – uh, on track to a uh, faster, better, uh, more optimistic future. And the the answer is not to – ultimately, you can play little gimmicks to get uh-huh. people on your side. But, you know, without, a, without an overarching, um, you know, agenda that will save the country from what's gone on for the last seven years. And I don't just mean, uh, you know, the Obama years, but also the last year, you know, the last year or two of Bush – um, you know, they can do. They can play every game they want, and they won't win. Uh, I, I agree with a lot of that. I think that um, uh, you know, you always need to keep in mind that that you know, Republicans don't have a problem with women. They have a problem with young single women. They have a problem with Julia, right? Yeah. And right. Um, and the gender gap kind of vanishes when you talk about married women. And uh, so obviously the answer is to get a lot of these 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 chicks hitched earlier. No, um, but um, I think that hi <laughs> um, I think that uh, I do think that you know the the sort of which is a big idea right now among a lot of Republicans, and I think Arthur Brooks from AI deserves some of the credit, or if you disagree, some of the blame for it is. There is this, you know, there's, I think all of us can agree, there is this sense that Republicans have a reputation of being mean and hard hearted and all of that kind of stuff and that they don't care. And, you know, personally, that doesn't bother me too much because I always, you know, I I think conservatism and should be a partial philosophy of life and that that's something that you need in government, otherwise, because you can't do everything for everybody, but it bothers other people. And so one of the points that, that Arthur makes and that others have made, and I think there is some truth to this, is that you have to demonstrate first to people that you care before they'll listen to your solutions. And I think there, there are a lot of these um, young women who think that um, the Republicans are just mean. And yeah. I think that things that like what Marco Rubio is doing, what Paul Ryan is doing, these guys are doing to sort of demonstrate that you actually care about people um, – and yet you care about things like poverty and that you may think inequality is misframed, but there are real issues there. I think that is useful because then you can start the conversation about your, what your real solutions are. But I also think Republicans need to sort of man up a bit and just simply – Mansplaining. Um, Uh-oh. Uh, there you go. In, in, in terms of uh, calling BS on the ridiculous war on women nonsense and and really sort of mocking and ridiculing – Democrats for the unbelievably condescending um, BS that they throw at women. I mean, if you if you listen to the you know if you actually think that you know republic the Republican positions on you know birth control amount to a war on women, you're an idiot. And uh, mocking that and exposing that, um, I think, it would help Republicans a lot to sort of just shake 
this sort of accepted conventional wisdom nonsense, um, you know, and 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 treat young women as if they're like, um, as if they're 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 not the caricatures that Democrats mm-hmm. take them to, for granted to, for being. Well, there's a lot to that. Yeah, I think, I think you're probably right. I, mean, I, I would say, I mean, just to drill down to one, there's one topic, right? That the one thing that everyone always talks about is abortion. That's the thing. Abortion's a hard one because it's easy to caricature, or not easy. They they do it very well. Um, it's easy because nobody pushes back on it, and it's easy to caricature a, a, a pro-life view. And it's hard to sell to young women who have been now sort of steeped in in the brew of, uh, you know, hands off my uterus. To, to that 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 the pro life position is not an anti woman position. I mean, we we know it isn't, but it's that's a hard one to sell to young women who've been so indoctrinated. That's just the, just the political reality. It seems to me our problem is, especially on that issue, is that we all we we when we talk about it as a um, as a political party, right, Republican Party, um, we talk about it. We talk about in in mechanical and political terms rather than in persuasive terms. So I I, I still remember um, George H. W. Bush, who I loved him because he, when he was asked about conservative stuff, he would he would go right to the finish, the last word, the last bold line on his position paper. And someone said, "Well, Mr. President, what do you or Mr. Vice President at the time, what are you, your position on abortion seems to have shifted?" He goes, "Yeah, now I, I err on the side of human life." What he said. Now, that made no sense to most Americans. What does that mean to err on the side of human life? You have to actually give them the steps, and that's one of the things I think we don't do. I mean, the people who are who are running on a pro life platform is actually give the steps, uh, because when you do, I think you find, you know, they find this the huge number of women become pro uh, life really right around the time they get their first ultrasound, um, and the ultrasound is kind of the best direct mail piece for the pro life movement. Um, so there is a Although way to do it. Actually, remarkably creepy when you get it as direct mail. <laughs> well, I haven't had I have not had that pleasure. But yes, but l- listen, it's a kind of perfect. So, by the way, Arthur Brooks has the lead article in the February issue of Commentary, which we're closing today on this very topic. So it'll be out in about a week. Um, anyway, I uh, one thing that 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 strikes me and and continues to strike me is this is a kind of perfect storm. It all comes together that. Uh, as somebody as somebody put it a couple last year, you know, it is it is rational for Julia to or the Julias of the world to look to government uh, for uh, support and 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 uh, you know and help uh, because of the you know decline of the institution of marriage, the fact that in the midst of this recession, um, you know. Uh, uh, Sort of mid mid level and lower lower level uh, male workers are finding it increasingly hard to get jobs, to stay in jobs, to get raises, to get new opportunities. Um, far far worse than is the case for for women. Men who don't uh, you know graduate college are in terrible shape. Uh, African American males are in terrible shape in this regard as are Hispanic males. And so, you know, there is a sense in which uh, you're fighting certain types of, you know, secular trends that are not so easily reversed because they involve the nature of the economy, the shifts in the American experiment, the shifts in the American economy, ways in which I think we all agree are very deleterious and very damaging to civil society. But nonetheless, people have to do what they have to do 
to, you know, to get through the day and get through the night, particularly if they're going to have children out of wedlock, uh, which, you know, as we know, Julia in the famous Life of Julia chart did because she had a kid and there was no husband. So, you know, they knew whom they were speaking to. So listen, this week we have to talk yet again about Encounter Books, our sponsor, and uh, their great medley of offerings. Um, And the pick this week, as I said at the top of the broadcast, is Glenn Reynolds' new book, The New School, How the Information Age Will Save American Education from Itself. Glenn Harlan Reynolds is, of course, best known as Instapundit, a law professor um, at the University of Tennessee who... Uh, who emerged from the Slate comment section uh, to run uh, one of the signature blogs of our of, of the blogging era? Wait, wait, is that is that is that true? Is that how that happened? I yeah, know, I didn't yeah. know the beginning. I didn't know the origin. Yeah, he was commenting on Mickey Kaus's blog, and then he decided to start his own like two months before September 11th, and then September 11th happened, and he exploded, and that you know. That is that is the he had he had already written he'd written a very good book about the con, about perceptions of the conflict of interest. He was a you know a tenured professor mm-hmm. right. at the University of Tennessee Law School. Anyway, uh, so this book uh, is actually his, as I heard him say, um, uh, Glenn say at a, at a at a dinner last week. Uh, generally speaking, he never wanted to write about education because. Uh, those who can't do teach and those who can't write, write about education. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, he started blogging about the uh, higher education bubble and how, you know, increasingly college was costing so much and institutions were building too much and no one was getting jobs and that something was developing akin to a bubble. And every time he did, he got enormous response and, and he really thought that there was something big here. So, you know, and as he said at this thing, uh, you know, Herb Stein, the economist, again, at the American Enterprise Institute, famously said that something that can't go on forever won't. For decades now, America has been investing ever-growing fortunes into its K-12 education system in exchange for steadily worse results. Public schools haven't changed much from the late 19th century industrial model. And as a result, young Americans are left increasingly unprepared for a competitive global economy. At the same time, Americans are spending more than they can afford on higher education, driven by the kind of cheap credit that fueled the housing bubble with college graduates unable to secure employment or pay off student loans. The real-world value of a traditional college education is in question. In the new school, Glenn Reynolds explains how parents, students, and educators can and must reclaim and remake American education already. Reynolds explains, many Americans are abandoning traditional education for new models. Many are going to charter schools or private schools, but others are going another step beyond and making the leap to online education. Over 1.8 million K-12 through students already. That is the theme of the book. For 15% off the price of this book, which uh, as somebody who was going to have three kids in college in 10 to 15 years, I'm very excited to see the possibilities that the whole system will collapse and be cheaper. Uh, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. We thank our friends at EncounterBooks for sponsoring the Glob podcast. So, so are you, have you ever thought about homeschooling, John? I've never thought about homeschooling, but uh, my niece uh, was an early uh, user of online education for, for high school. as She had a terrible high school experience right. in, in D.C., and she actually – 10 years ago now, actually graduated 
got got a you know essentially graduated from high school using an, getting an online education and she's a very well educated person so um, but I do think that you know I mean the the argument in this in this book which is that you know people are people are being fed a, a, a preposterous deal the notion that they should you know borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars essentially to get a ticket into the into the middle and upper middle classes right uh, for jobs that essentially leave them that, that where they can't pay off these loans and le- begin their lives in a in a condition in complete, of indebtedness in, in, in total indebtedness yeah that's is, right is is insane and cannot continue right. despite the fact that you know the obama administration among others is peddling the notion that the only and most important thing on earth is for you to send your kids to college. By the way, well, not, pe- not that pe- they pe- should graduate from college because, well, you know, one of the interesting things about college is 27 to 30 percent of people who go to college actually graduate from college. And you cannot make the argument aside from, aside from the fact that, you know, maybe it's good to drop out of college if you get a great entrepreneurial idea – that it's really great to borrow forty thousand dollars so you go to school for a year and a half and then drop out. Well, but you know, it's they are they are they are encouraging. You know, they, they have this very loose idea about student loans and they want to make great more student loans. But they are very very tough on for profit colleges, which are mostly you know vocational kind of training. Sometimes highly advanced vocational, meaning computer coding and engineering and um, all sorts of design work. But they hate those – Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education, who is, is actually pretty good when it comes to secondary school, high school innovation, pretty good when it comes to big fat teachers unions, that kind of thing, is lousy. And this administration is lousy when it comes to the innovations that ha- are happening in the for-profit education sphere. This is not a funny thing to say, but it's true. Um, and so they, they're cracking down on that, on, those, on the schools that say, oh, we're going to prepare you for a job and instead sort of trying to open the floodgates for the schools that say, we're going to prepare you to talk about French poetry. At some point, do we have to understand that there's a difference that like actually if you want to study French poetry, that's fine. But uh, maybe – Listen, it, that would be that, good. You know, By the way, I'm sorry. If it were that you should go and learn about French poetry, that would be one thing. It's not that. It's that you should go and major in communications. That's the problem. Yeah, that's you should yeah. go and major in American studies. That's the problem. Like learning French poetry would make you an educated person. Studying <laughs> communications at a state college will make you a moron. Will uh, will actually, things. you know, so. I, I would make two points. One, just because I, I think it's worth saying, is that community colleges are actually really impressive places in this country. That's true. I'm always amazed. I speak on, I, I speak to a lot of community colleges, and you get there, and these kids, you know, first of all, they're not, a lot of them aren't kids, right? These are people who have basically, their decision tree went awry, or they couldn't afford to go to college, and they have been in the job market, and they decided they want to make their lives better. And so a lot of them, really care about what they're spending their money on in terms of their course credits and they don't have a lot of tolerance for bs and i you know and it's the closest we get to an apprentice system in this country or a vocational kind of thing and um i'm you know i I think i'm pretty clearly not a huge tax and spend kind of guy but i would love to see at least a reorienting of the student aid stuff go more towards community colleges and less towards the elite schools but the second thing bringing around to the question about the young women thing you know, uh, Tyler Cowan and Megan McArdle and a couple and Peg Gobri and a couple other guys. They had some a really interesting conversation about six months or a year ago about the. It's it's kind of fascinating. The the premium you get, the advantage you get from getting married, 
is basically, in terms of economics, in terms of your income, is basically as good as the premium you get from going to college. And yet you cannot swing a dead cat anywhere in American life um, without hearing some tweedy elbow patch um, intellectual liberal writer, uh, a lot of conservatives too. It is just sort of a conventional wisdom in American culture that you really should go to college. And no one wants to make the case that you should get married. They, and I'm not saying that you should get you should marry right. someone you don't want to get married to. Right. But everyone couches it in this. It's the best investment you can make in yourself. Not really. Um, in terms of you know life outcomes, forget just the income part, but the other parts of it. Marriage is really good for you, and I'm not saying you know I'm not saying everyone should get married, and no one should marry the person that they don't want to marry. But um, maybe this idea that somehow it would be outrageous to talk about this aspect of our lives um, that that idea could be put by the wayside, and at least let, you know. But academics. In particular, they, you know, it's sort of like the guys you see on CNBC. They like to talk their book. They like to talk their own portfolio. Every academic is perfectly comfortable talking about how great it is to get a degree, even in Aramaic or communications theory or whatever. But no one really wants to get involved in the, in the, the squishy parts, the, the socially unacceptable parts of people's lives. And I, I think you know, oh, there's it's not sort just of a mismatch it's, there. It's not just that. For example, you would, you would find that the general – uh, bias in the United States would, among the elites and among you know the chattering classes is that there is something almost insane about getting married young. You don't know who you are. Right. You need a period yeah, of questing. Yeah, right, right. Now I'm somebody. I got I got married at 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 forty uh, one. So um, I a very can young say, forty though. I knew you then. A very young you forty. Did. But here's what I can say about that, which is that if I had known – now, obviously, I'm not – I'm very happily married and I have three wonderful children that I would not wish away. Um, but you know, if I had uh, known – but if I had known how good marriage would be for me when I was younger, you know, if I had really had an understanding of, of, of what it might do for me in terms of my own – Self-knowledge, self-understanding, uh, place in the world, what, what it was important to focus on, I certainly would have thought that I wasted a great deal of time you know, in the early going not getting married. And I think it is preposterous to assume that these you – know, that people who are 22 or 23 should not get married because they don't know who they are. Nobody knows who, who he is or she is ever – Right. And part of how you define yourself is in relation to your community as a parent, as a spouse. These are definitional things. This is not an existential challenge to find out who you are at root or at soul. That is a that is a you know, much of that is very malleable and and, and plastic. And so um you know, and on the other hand, yes, so what you should do it, you should go to you should go to Europe for a couple of years and you it's okay to live in your parents' basement and you need a period of questing. Well, no, actually, you don't need a period of questing, in part because you're going to be saddled with hundreds of thousands of dollars of <laughs> right. debt. Right. Maybe you need to get a move on so you can get yourself out of debt so that you can it, then – It is that weird thing, that, that the, the perfection of the individual, this idea that like your individual unis happens kind of in a vacuum, that you sort of sit uh, by a lake and you do a lot of journaling, as they say. And throughout that journaling, you kind of come up with the kind of person you are. And then when, you, when you're fully done and you're fully baked, then you find someone in your life to, to who is also fully done and fully baked. 
and you you kind of what stand next to each other as fully baked human beings and and then go it doesn't really work that way because at that point first of all you're never done as you put it you never you never really know who you are you're never fully grown uh, it is it's a weird uh, it's a it's kind of it's weirdly unrealistic uh, so not very um uh, but it's also uh, considering it's, about marriage. It's not. It's not very. It's not. It's not very true to the way people really are. Uh, but you know, it's always, also. It's also bizarrely defensive. In other words, it has this quality of, I didn't get married when I was twenty-two. Therefore, it was wrong. Yeah. It's wrong for anybody to get married when they're yeah. twenty-two. And so I, you know, you shouldn't because I didn't, and I got married when I was thirty. Now I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying I got married when I was forty-one. And aside from the existential young 41, fact, let's say young forty-one. But yeah, thank you very much. But aside from the existential fact that I would not wish to be married to someone else or have different children, I should have gotten married at twenty-two or twenty-three. I would be better off had I gotten married at twenty-two or twenty-three. What would be different? I, no, I think I would have been a more productive. I think I would have been a more spiritually centered person. I would have been. I would have been a more. I would have led a life that I might have been prouder of. Um, I would have, you know. And and by the way, one of the co- costs of having children later on in life and all of that is your parents are much older, so they yeah. can't participate as much in the raising of your children. When you know, let's say I live long enough to see a lot of grandchildren, I'll be a little too old to take care to take good care of them and be a help to my children when they have children. Your grandchildren are just going to sit there and say, "Granted, we don't care who the two Darrens were." That's we just right. don't you care. Know what? You know, well, we have two Darrens. Wait, sit down. I'm talking to you. There were two of them. One of them was a thin, reedy guy with a big nose. The other one, kind of different. And nobody said anything. But Grandpa, we know there were two Darrens. And they never got off the island. They never got off the island. Except in a TV movie. Did I tell you about the TV? Yes, Granddad. Tell about the TV. I'm sorry. I think John's actually right. If, if you meet – I don't think I've ever met. I'm sure plenty exist. But I've never met anybody who had kids who, if you ask them, do you wish you had them earlier in your life, hasn't said yes. Or the other way around, who doesn't say, I had my kids when I was 20 or 21 or 22, and I really wish I'd waited 10 years because I had so much less energy when I was 31 (laughs) than when I was 21. And I did so much, you know, sleep deprivation was so much easier on me when I was 31 than I was 21. And also this fact that, you know, that means, by the way, that when your kids get out of the house, you have a whole other life ahead of you. That's the interesting part of it. So your kids are in their 20s and you're in your late 40s. That, you know, my, my, that strikes me almost now as, as a kind of idyllic thing. You know, you're, you're, you have a whole new existence ahead of you and then, you know, then you have grandchildren to deal with, which is a, which is a you know, pretty much – from what I can tell, a lot of the joy of having kids and less of the pain <laughs> and less of the agony, you know. So, so I think that's a that's a big thing, and I, I don't mean to I don't mean to make any kind of you know recommendations to anybody. I just think that Joan is right that there is a kind of bizarre silence of conversation about this, and I think some of it probably has to do with the fact that people don't want to make people who find it hard and difficult to find people to get married to. 
feel bad by saying they should get married as soon as possible. Because it's like, well, maybe they can't. They're having trouble finding anyone to be with at all. So now you're just making them feel bad. But um, but listen, Dave, our Ricochet uh, uh, member, uh, points out, and this deals with what Rob said, he, he asked this, you all do intellectual work of one kind or another. Would you recommend such a career vocation to young people? Given the state of the humanities, how would you react if your child said he wanted to be a literature major. Um, Jonah, would, would you recommend uh, an intellectual vocation to young people? Uh, to young people, yes. Um, to my own kid, only if she wanted to. I mean, I don't know. Look, I mean, like, I, had a, I had an old boss when I was a television producer. And uh, not like a Rob television producer, a dorky PBS television producer. And mm-hmm. did um, you know there were two Bill Moyerses? <laughs> It's all the same. Fiery line ran longer than Meet the what? Press, I tell you. Longer. Uh, I never got off that chair. And a lehrer. <laughs> um, I remember Agronsky and company. No, uh, so anyway, uh, the um, and my old boss, his his mom was a painter, and like a and not a super successful one, but sold made a nice living selling, you know, uh, her, you know landscape portraits to rich people in Connecticut kind of painter. And, um, and when I was sort of getting tired of being, I loved being a television producer for a while when the learning curve was really steep. And then at the end of the day, I got bored with it and I didn't like it. And I hated managing people because managing people sucks. And, um, um, and he told me this story. He says, look, you know, my mom always says, if you want to be a painter, before you decide what you want to paint or what kind of painter you want to be, you have to like smushing the paints. <laughs> and what he meant by that was – what she meant by that was you have to like the process of squeezing out the tubes and smushing the paints and making the palette. You have to like the smell of it and the feeling of a, you get when you look at a brand new canvas and all of that. And if you don't like smushing the paints, over time, you're not going to be a good painter. And it's always stuck with me. Not a lot of advice I got from that old boss has stuck with me, but that's always stuck with me because I think at the end of the day, whatever career you pick, you have to like smushing the paints because every career involves so much drudgery, so many pains in the ass that if you don't like at some level the little things, you know, whether you want to be a writer or a literature professor or whatever, if the little things to you are such unbelievable drudgery that you hate them, You'll that will swamp everything else, and you have to have an appreciation of it, whatever you do. And so, I think that young people care too much about advancing their careers too quickly, and all of that, and they're too ambitious about this. At least a lot of the young people I meet, there might be a filter mechanism, you know, filter bias there. But I, I think that if you love what you do, even the smushing the paints part of it. The money will follow, and you may not get as rich as somebody else, but who gives a rat's ass if you enjoy the day to day part of your job? Um, I, I, I sort of agree with that. I, I, I would say as a corollary, ancillary or a secondary uh, point, I, I was uh, uh, flying home on, on Sunday night and I was uh, uh, waiting for um, the taxi, the huge taxi lines always in, uh, at LAX. And I'm on Twitter and my um, – I have a, a, not a close friend, not even a, – a distant acquaintance, Mark Andreessen, who uh, was the guy who um, – Invented the well, the modern browser, or actually the old browser that I Netscape. As, as, I remember Netscape. Yeah, as a conservative, of course, we all use uh, the same. We old all browser. use Netscape. Uh, um, uh, and he he asked a question. He said, "Why is it that um, the the uh, high tech, the sort of tech industry pundits and journalists seem to be mad 
and to mock someone. And I think they're talking really specifically about the CEO of Snapchat for turning down lots and lots of money, turned down $3 billion to sell his company to instead stay with his company and keep building it. And they seem to think that was stupid. He should have left. And I said it's probably because that those people no longer see uh, entrepreneurs in the tech business as uh, uh, you know people building companies and see them instead as movie stars who start in a movie, the movie called Snapchat, and they move on to the next movie, uh, which he he found um, uh, d- disturbing, but but didn't but but agreed with. And I kind of feel like that is where I, the, the advice I would give to somebody is find, and, uh, as, a, as an answer to what Jonah said is find something that you can do. And that you really want to finish because I know a lot of people want to be pundits. They want to go on TV. They want to be – you know, how, how do I get on Fox News? Everybody wants to have an opinion. Nobody really wants to do any reporting. Uh, everybody wants to um, write a, a pilot for television. Nobody really wants to learn how to write a script or an episode. Uh, the hard stuff we, we no longer teach or, have a, or, or even believe that people should have a capacity for. You should only have a capacity for one big thing, big flash, and then you go on to the next flash. And I think that's a real problem. I mean I see that in my business trying to hire writers who have a hard time uh, working on a story or have a hard time understanding why a story for one show and a story for another show. I mean even though the shows are different, they still have the same requirements. Um, that, that level of craft has really gone away, which I think is probably smushing the paints is, is the easier way to say it. But it really is a level of craft, which comes from hard work and practice and, and failing and uh, sticking to something. Well, you and, know, and, and anyway, fa- pers- pers- pursuing intellectual pursuits is not a matter of choice. You either – it's the sort of thing that either seizes you or it doesn't seize you. You're either interested in in ideas – uh, and policy issues at a granular le- level, or you're not interested. In, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, uh, I think a, a lot of us feel as though the great political missed opportunity and you know, sort of the the great uh, political disappointment story of our time is Sarah Palin. Now, why is Sarah Palin a particular kind of disappointment? Because the idea is okay. Here's this person. She comes out of nowhere. She's got a you know modest education. She goes from being the mayor of this small town to being the governor of the state in ten years, solely and supremely by sort of acts of will. She's very politically brave. She does all this you know politically brave stuff, and one presumes that she is motivated as people who get involved in politics in this kind of reformist way are by ideas about reform. And so when it turned out she didn't know what the Reagan doctrine was and this and that, and people complained, my, my, my supposition speculation was fine. So she'll go off for a couple of years. This is obviously in her blood. It's ingrained in her. She will go off for a couple of years, read books, talk to the right people. This is all stuff that is natural to her, but she doesn't have, you know, the background in it and she doesn't feel it. And it turned out that I was wrong, that in fact she didn't have those interests, that she was seduced by her own, you know, sort of populism without without sort of the, the grounding and the actual things that people should, you know, do and, and how policy is made um, and, and what the ideas are that, that, that back it, except in the most uh, uh, general fashion. Um, and I think under those circumstances, it turns out that, you know, having interests like that are not things that can be sort of grafted onto somebody in their 30s and 40s. You either have them because it's the way you look at the world and the way you perceive things, and it's how the world looks to you, or you don't. And I'm not even saying, by the way, that it's a better or a worse way to be. I think this is just the nature 
of, of the beast. I would say I think that it is a highly problematic thing mm, to want highly. to go, go go into the academy. <laughs> to, yeah. Yes. No, I, well, I, I just mean I just mean it, it, it that is a that is a bum's deal. You're 21 years old. You have to go off to graduate school. You spend six or seven years, you know, uh, working, uh, you know, uh, working on scholarship that no one is going to see in order to get a bad job at the end in which you are ill paid and where people 40 and 50 years older than you are clinging by their fingernails onto the positions that you could you 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 can get into you can't make a life for yourself if you marry another academic you are you are you, you, your careers can't possibly harmonize and it's and not to mention the sort of soul deadening nature of political correctness on college campuses so i don't think that i think that's a terrible career choice for most people unless they're really interested in a particular kind of of you know humanity scholarship unless right. they are so consumed by you know 17th century poetry that they can't imagine not spending their life studying it like you know in a, like a talmudist studies the talmud yeah it's like when i talk to college kids and i ask them and I, i've made several cry i'm quite proud to say <laughs> um I ask them, you know, I, often when I'll go out to like dinner with the college Republicans or the editors of the school paper, I'll go around the table and I'll ask who, who's going to law school. And, you know, the first thing I tell them is you do know that if you go to a law school, you will become a lawyer. Yes. And, and, and you get, you get, a, you get some say, oh. yeah, of course. And other kids give you this pushback. Well, there's so many things you can do with a law degree. And the next question I ask is, are you going to take out student loans to go to law school? And they say, yes. And I'm like, well, then you're definitely going to become a lawyer because you have to pay off those loans. And I know, and I'm sure John knows, I don't know about Rob being out I there in, I don't know. in Sodom, but uh, the, um, I know a lot of really miserable lawyers. I, I, I and, only know miserable lawyers. Well, no, I don't only know them, but, I, but, but yeah, yeah. It, it, it is traditional for them to be miserable. And they all um, – and it's because they all had, you know, they uh, not all of them, but a lot of them went to law school because they just didn't know what they wanted to do. They figured yeah. it was a safe thing to do, it would extend the college experience. And I go back to my smooshing the pain thing. If you really want to be a lawyer, if you love the law and you really get into it and it's a real skill set of yours, by all means, go to law school. But don't do it because you can't come up with something better to do. And you see the same thing with these kids who go to And by the way, school. particularly now because in the in the, you know, in the 70s, 80s and 90s and probably even in the aughts or whatever we call them. We call them the aughts. Um, there were more there were more jobs in law than people knew what to do with. And if you did it and you got out, you actually could get a serious job in any realm. You you might be miserable doing it, but you got a job. Now you have this, the, the spectacle of people spending three years in law school on $200,000 or more in tuition and they get out and they can't get a job unless they go to the top five schools. And yep. they have been handed a bill of goods and they've been handed a bill of goods by by yeah. their president and by their school and by their and by the admissions officer at the law school and by the law school itself. Now, final question, final issue. Good because uh, this is not this is this is we have not been funny in, in a while. Right. We've been word word emerged word emerged oh. just yesterday or the day before that a new direction is being taken in the uh, next Star Wars uh, film by J.J. Abrams coming out in 2015. That uh, in fact apparently the Oscar-winning screenwriter Michael Arndt was fired off the movie because he wanted to make a movie about the kids of 
Leah and Han and uh, and Luke and uh, and J.J. Abrams wants to make a movie in which Leah and Han and Luke play a major role and Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford are going to be uh, major uh, factors in Star Wars Episode 7 and I say, oh my God, ah. Because <laughs> what does ah, what does that mean? Is that good? A, is that bad? Carrie, Carrie Fisher is yeah. a crazy person and Harrison Ford... I've now seen in three movies, he is like a walking corpse. And who even knows what Mark Hamill, like who wants to see well, Mark I, Hamill again? I would rather, if I was going to go back to, I would rather see Mark Hamill, you know, on Big Brother than in a major uh, motion picture or, you know, on Celebrity Rehab. Not that I'm saying he needs Celebrity Rehab, but that's the only place in which I would want to see Mark Hamill. I don't need to see him 40 feet across. At the age of sixty-five, interestingly, Mark you know, Hamill drinking Geritol. Interestingly, Mark Hamill has a thriving career as a voiceover guy. He does a lot of right. voiceovers. He's got a lot of voiceovers because you don't want to look at him. <laughs> well, but he's a good voice. I my my worry about having the three of them on is that um, you're gonna you're gonna Han Solo when he married Princess Leia um, did not realize how much she enjoyed <clears throat> you know the snacking. <laughs> and the, the sugary <laughs> carbohydrates. It's going to be really hard to, for you to see that movie and not think, "Oh my god!" You know, I, I married Princess Leah, and, and, and she, she and turned she, into <clears throat> Jabba the Hutt. Exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Um, so I, I think that would be un, un, that would that would that would cast a pall over it. you. You you think so? Bring Jar Jar Binks back. At least there's some comic relief there. Um, easy. Easy. Yeah, I I, but I, I, you know, I, 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 the, 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 the three that Lucas did for me poisoned the well so much, uh, and I love the the first three, meaning the third, the second three. I mean the original three, yeah. three. Um, oh, two, two of the three. Which one you did can't you like? Tell me you like the Ewoks one. Who likes the Ewoks one? Nobody liked the Ewoks one. I like the Ewoks. I liked it at the time. I, I, it's it soured yeah, on me. Were but twelve. You <laughs> were mean the first one. No, the third one. Third oh, the Return of the Jedi? I yeah. like that one. Yeah. Um, anyway. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so, I, so why uh, make another one? I know what you're the saying. sequels are so spoiled. And I, I can't believe that they're doing this. I mean, because first of all, other than, you know, I mean, I guess Princess, you know, I guess Carrie Fisher can lose weight. But like Harrison Ford, maybe I'm wrong with this. Every movie I've seen him in for the last five, ten years, I'm convinced he's just stoned. No. I just saw him in Ender's Game, which was terrible, by the way, and it, it took him like an hour to deliver yeah. a line. All he had to say was, you know, Ender, go into the game room. And it would be like, Ender, go into the he's stoned. game room. Well, game room. Now, you're, you're laughing, but um, he, he is a well-known – He's a well-known – How should I put, put this? Colorado. Uh, yeah, well known Coloradan. He's a very well known uh, Coloradan, shall we say? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm sure of it. You look at him and you can just see it. But um, I thought that the whole point of J.J. Abrams was to reimagine things, right? I mean, so you don't get you don't get William Shatner back for a Star Trek reboot. Why would you get Harrison Ford back for a Star Wars reboot? Well, Although, if you got William Shatner back, you you could uh, she he and, and Carrie Fisher could wear the same clothes. Well, that's true. And <laughs> William Shatner at least has a little, you know, overacting in him. Yeah, like, a, know, a little. He, he, yeah, he's he, got a little. You know, of that. Like, a yeah. little. Like, yeah. He'd be like, you know, <laughs> Leah. Um, I, you I, are my I, sister. <laughs> Cracked magazine, which 
I think is an underrated web resource. Um, web resource. Had a interesting feature uh, this week or last week on 30 movie trivia facts, and two are relevant for you here. One, can you believe that Darth Vader had only 12 minutes of screen time in the original Star Wars? And two. No, that's, like, that's like one of my favorite facts, which is that Hannibal Lecter, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter on screen for 17 minutes. In, is that right? Yeah, in Silence of the Lambs. The greatest, vil- you know, the greatest villain performance or whatever you want to call it, you know, dark performance in American screen history, 17 minutes on screen. Wow. And then the you second do. thing, since you brought up William Shatner, is do you know that Michael Myers' uh, mask in the Halloween movies um, was simply a William a Captain Kirk mask painted white. See, and you know how you know how you wow. you didn't recognize that because it didn't have a toupee on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You it wasn't, need, you need, it, wasn't you need it wasn't surrounded. It wasn't surrounded and encased in 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 flesh. Exactly. Surrounded by flesh. Um it wasn't the, now, uh, I think Jonah it wasn't on something I, that could be seen I, from the space shuttle. Yes. I ahead. actually I wrote a piece for the Weekly Standard uh, two years ago in which I argued that William Shatner is the greatest star ever to have emerged from television because he had he had hit series in four different decades or memorable series in four different decades. He did not really make it as a movie star except playing a character that he created. On television, he was in his 30s, 40s, and 50s. Now he's 80. And um, he is the pluperfect television personality creation. He did Star Trek in the 60s. He did T.J. Hooker in the 70s and 80s. He did Boston uh, Legal in the 90s. And then he did this show, you know, Blank My Dad Says in 2010, which ended up failing. But but, but But it premiered huge. Huge yeah, he was like, he was good like, in it. I mean, yeah, I, I remember the the minute they cast him, I thought, oh, damn, that's a real, that's a coup. You, that's who you'd yeah, want because that exactly. was the hard part to cast. Casting that role was hard. I mean, exactly. the, the show didn't work, but it wasn't his fault. He worked. Yeah. So um, anyway, so uh, but I think it's fair to say that Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher are not the greatest movie stars of the of the modern era, though Harrison Ford obviously, you know. Uh, had had his had his day, and as as David Clark Ricochet Reader said, please just talk about Blade Runner. People aren't talking about Blade Runner enough these days, <laughs> so let's talk about Blade Runner. Boy, was Blade Runner good, except for the narration. And now, in most of the later versions, you don't have to hear the narration, which is really well. Wait, wait, yeah, I mean that's that's the problem with the the request. I mean, there is the. 25th anniversary director's cut oh. there's the unlimited 30th anniversary oh. edition there's the original one I mean there's so many different versions the of Blade cut, Runner by the way the director's cut is never shorter <laughs> that's right that's, no, that's right it shouldn't it be only, called a cut it should be called the director's only the, only the Farrelly brothers did it only the Farrelly brothers put it they did they put a director's cut of something about Mary I think or one of their one of their big hits and they said uh, we don't need this it's just, it's just we, we would cut this out and they cut it out, and it was shorter. I mean, I admired that. I, the, the director's cuts are just so indulgent, and then the, the DVD yeah. talk. Good lord, it's a movie. I, I have never listened to a DVD commentary in my life ever, ever. Because like, what am I? What What am I going to do? Like, I'm going to watch it for the eighth time. Also, I don't smoke pot, so I think <laughs> yeah. you need yeah. to smoke pot. I think really, without the pot, 
There's really no purpose to watch. So Harrison Ford watches the DVD commentary all the time. In In, Colorado. Colorado. Understand what I'm saying? (laughs) I'm sending you you dog whistles. I understand that Harrison Ford's uh, uh, experience as a Coloradan is one of the reasons that he was cast in the motion pictures in the first place. But um, in the the 1970s, when he was working as a carpenter, I don't understand why you guys feel the need. We are in a new era where pot is okay. You can uh, you can talk about these things without a uh, code. Yeah, so wait, can we, I know we got to wrap this up, but before we do, is that is that is it really okay now? Is it going to be legalized everywhere? Do you think? No, I, I hope I, not. I think but. it's going to be in like my guess is like half the half the country will legalize it, and then we'll have we'll spend you know twenty years with people lying on the streets staring at their hands back. Oh my god, look at that. <laughs> Wow. It's a very, it's a very square thing. That's such a square thing for you. To I say. am a totally square. I I just think we're li- you know, we live in this completely prohibitionist age on the one hand in which, you know, if you smoke, you're going to get shot to death on the street. And if you drink, you know, you have to immediately go into a rehab program if you, you know, if you if you say boo or, you know, like have a fight with somebody on the street. But meanwhile, we're going to sort of make it possible for people to use this extremely that's true, actually. Uh, powerful, uh, you know, this extremely powerful sort of narcotic, you know, this this sort of downer thing that makes people sort of shiftless and interesting. God knows what the consequences are going to be. The real question is, is whether is the famous gateway drug in reverse? Like, remember, the whole thing is, oh, marijuana is not a gateway yeah. drug to cocaine and heroin and all this. The question is, will the legalization of pot become a gateway drug to the legalization of cocaine and heroin and <laughs> other or, stuff? That's or, will the, the, or, or will it just cause people to drink more? <laughs> uh, you know, you don't usually need much. Uh, but, you know, there is always the, there is ultimately the big difference between drinking and 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 uh you know illicit drug use which is that the point was that it uh you know it was impossible to 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 criminalize it this notion that there's a total parallel between you know uh a fact that this substance has basically for more than 100 years has not been legal and now is going to be is yes you know, that's a whole different thing well listen i think we have come to the end Oh, no. Of this, uh, you know, uh, will and uh, obviously uh, Rob and Jonah are going to be in Los Angeles on what date? Uh, we are going to be there at, 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 uh, January twenty. Oh, the twenty, not the twenty ninth. January twenty sixth. It's this twenty sixth Sunday, the twenty sixth. Go to ricochet dot com, <clears throat> join, and then buy a ticket and come. And we'd love to meet you. And we're going to have a lot of fun and have a lot, of, a lot of time before we do the podcast to chat uh, with our. Uh, um, our listeners and Ricochet members and um, it's going to be a great time. And uh, I, of course, will be at uh, Chuckles in, uh, in, 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 in yeah. West Nyack uh, opening for not only uh, Shecky Green uh, and Buddy Hackett, but of course the uh, legendary Freddie Roman. So please... Uh, all deceased. All deceased. Uh, yes. <laughs> Please go to uh, deadcomedians.com yeah. uh, to buy tickets. And uh, thank you, guys. That was. Uh, we, will, uh, we will gather for our uh, next podcast sometime after you guys gather for your 200th podcast. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you all the information, all the news. Great. Thanks a lot. See you in Colorado. Later, guys.
Ricochet. Join the conversation. Now. All right, now how do I play? We're almost done. Okay. How do I? So, three rules. This is a Larry King game. Play with your friends. I want a bad Larry King impression, please. And then share something about yourself that no one knows. You know, a little bumper. Your first ride on a train. Whatever. Okay. Anything. And then go to the phones, and the name of the town you go to should be funny sounding. Schenectady. Okay, okay. Okay. Into your own camera when you're ready. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. You're listening to the Larry King Show. I got to tell you something about myself that nobody knows. I'm definitely afraid of roller coasters. I don't even walk near a roller coaster about the fear of getting on a roller coaster. Oshkosh, Wisconsin, you're on. <laughs> perfect. Yes. That's genius. If I may, that's genius. That's what's what. Yeah, I'm yeah, doing yeah. myself. That's perfect.